Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to Oh God, What Now? The politics podcast that looks to prosperous European nations like Spain and wonders what could have been if not for questionable officiating. I'm Andrew Harrison. If you're watching the show on YouTube, hello. We've been thrilled by the reaction to our appearance on video so far. And if you're still just listening in audio on your commute, you can go to youtube.com slash ohgodwhatnow to find out what the panel looked like. And as also, there's a link in the show notes. You can find full episodes there and more clips on our own YouTube channel. On today's show... Crank up your wireless and we'll be done before the start of the light programme. Are we now trapped in 50s Britain? And if we are, how do we get out of the original austerity decade? For right-wing national conservatives, the 50s are a lost Eden, albeit with Anthony Eden. But are the British people really up for a life of deference, family and shutting up and getting on with it? Plus, if Labour had a clean slate and the cash to pull it off, how could they solve the endless housing crisis? Also, the panel will be nominating the heroes and villains of the week. So let's meet that panel. Tom Peck is the Independent's political sketch writer. He's a happy man at the minute because there's no politics to sketch. How are you doing, Tom? <laughs> I'm doing good. How are you? Yeah, not bad, not bad. So I hope you've dried your eyes after the uh, Women's <laughs> World Cup final. Uh, Serena Vigman is apparently being considered for the men's job should Southgate step down. But given that the women's team just made it to the final, wouldn't that be a downgrade for her <laughs> to take on the flagging England men's team? I mean, I have to say I'm not convinced she is being considered. I read all those stories with keen interest and the chairman of the FA was asked whether she could, in theory, take over from Gareth Southgate. And he could hardly say, no, she's a woman. But I'm not, um, I'm not convinced she is being considered. Um, would it be a downgrade for her? The answer to that is no. Um, I don't want anyone to hate me. I'm just going to state something that is factually correct, which is that the men's game in the year 2023 is still a massive step up from the women's game. And the whole point, that the, the, the women's game has made so much progress. And obviously the whole mission is that that won't be true in 2033, but it is true in 2023. And one of the big things you could do to close that gap would absolutely be to see someone like Serena Wegman managing a team in the Premier League. That would be an absolutely tremendous thing for women's football. Well, the Everton job will be coming up soon, so maybe she can have a crack at that one. Did you enjoy <laughs> a noted soccer ball fan Rishi Sunak wearing an England shirt with the price tag still on it and yeah. telling the women's team that they'd left nothing on the pitch? I mean, what a dork. I mean, that's the thing about Rishi Sunak is that he's just a dork, isn't he? I mean, I don't find his sort of down-to-earth act as grating as I have in other politicians we have known. I mean, I think he does like football just as much as most people. He supports Southampton. I mean, he absolutely <laughs> he, he absolutely bodied the Australian Prime Minister during the Ashes with a gag about sandpaper, which is something that Cameron or Johnson would never have managed. Like, Cameron made a total wally of himself pretending to like football when he didn't. And Johnson, to his credit, actually didn't pretend to like football. And it might only be me, but I sort of find Sunak's hapless, sort of thick of it style, gaff prone geekdom almost quite endearing because it's just so it's just so laughably crap rather than like a sort of rage inducing. Yes. Hannah Fern is a social affairs journalist for the iPaper and several other titles. Hello, Hannah. Hello. So there was another Labour backsliding again row over the weekend when first the FT reported the party was going to water down its plans to protect gig workers and the newly employed. And then Angela Rayner said, no, we're going to ban zero hours contracts, going to end fire and rehire. We're going to end qualifying periods of basic rights. What is going on here? Well, both things are sort of true, I think. It's like Schrodinger's so employment <laughs> policy. That they can both be true because there is this document which the FT did see and it clearly uses very, very different language to the language used when Sunak and Rayner were on TV talking about how they're going to protect people in the gig economy 
people who want parental rights or sick pay rights from day one in their job, they were using very business-focused language. It talked about things like a framework to differentiate between jobs where you have a full-time contract and jobs where you're on a basically a, a zero hours, very, very flexible contract where you can be shafted. It also talked about probation periods with fair and transparent rules, which to any union member sounds like, well, you're just going to shaft me. Mm. Uh, as soon as it, you want to get rid of me, you can just bin me off in my probation period. So I do understand why Unite and other union members feel a bit cheated by this and that it sounds very different to what was promised uh, in, in the initial uh, setting out of their plans for employment. But I, I do think that it's, the truth is somewhere between the two. They're mm. going to have to compromise a little bit uh, in order to win the election. But there are some basic promises that they've made that will be in there. And this language doesn't prevent those. So things like not being able to be unfairly dismissed just because you're in your probation period in a job, say. Mm. Um, so I, I think, yeah, a bit of, bit of both. Right. It's part of it that um, in order to seem kind of not business hostile, You've got to adopt the language of uh, yes, definitely. You know, going forward in this space, uh, low-hanging fruits, yeah. uh, energise the creative forward. space yeah, um, and reaching out. Let's but, take it offline, yeah. which I've never understood because it basically means not in a meeting. <laughs> yeah, I, I, it's a really strange thing just about terminology and sounding like you fit in with the people and that you understand their difficulties and finances and so on. It, I think it is just an, a document for a particular audience. Uh, but I do understand equally why if I was... Um, in Unite, I'd be starting to get a bit panicky. Yeah, where's my scrambled egg and smoked salmon? Same. Uh, comedian Macarena is fresh off the fringe with a pocket full of flyers. How are you doing, Matt? I'm very well. How are you? Not bad. Did you have a good time? I had a lovely time. Yeah, it was really nice. I was just there for a week, so I kind of got a real sense of it without being too shattered. And you did about 30 million shows? Uh, <laughs> not as many as I have in the past. I did five solo shows and a few extra gigs. So but I went to see loads of stuff as well, which was lovely. Well, while you were away enjoying yourself <laughs> in the People's Republic of Scotland, um, a court in Germany has ruled that it's not going to extradite its prisoners to the UK because our conditions are too poor. Karlsruhe Higher Regional Court was supposed to extradite an Albanian prisoner to Britain and it said that the move is currently inadmissible because of the prison conditions here. I mean, the Conservatives are always telling us how, uh, you know, prisoners have it too easy. It's like a bloody hotel. <laughs> and of course, we've seen the kinds of bloody hotel they want to put people in. Um, but is, is this the global Britain that we want the world to be seeing? You can't send prisoners here. It's too... Ratty. Yeah, I mean, I, I I did a bit of light relief after the Edinburgh Fringe and read the whole court decision um, <laughs> in translation, which um, which included the response from the British government, which has got them into trouble. And I think it just shows that there is this real contrast between the German court system, which takes things very seriously and has, wants detailed information about what the prison will be like and how they'll be treated. Uh, and the government response was, it just felt like a press release that had been sent to a newspaper and it had phrases like, um, we are delivering 20,000 additional modern prison places, the largest prison bill programme in a century, ensuring the right conditions are in place to rehabilitate prisoners, helping to cut crime and protect the public. It's like, yeah, sure, you can write that on a manifesto, but what what is actually happening to this prisoner right now? Yeah. And it did feel to me it essentially boiled down to sort of the legal equivalent of going, hey, come on, <laughs> <laughs> it's us, we're cool, it will be fi- it'll be fine. And... It does feel like, yeah, increasingly people around the world are going, no. No, absolutely. By the way, thanks to uh, listener Lord Leon Thirst on their Twitter stroke X for spotting that story. We thought it was quite fascinating. Mm. First up this week, back to the 50s. Numbers released by the OBR back in March show that the UK is experiencing its largest decline in living standards since the 1950s. And like then, we've lost the international connections that used to give us not just power, but an international trading network. The New Europeans' Jaunty Bloom, which is an old-timey name if ever we'd heard one, summed up our predicament in a searing piece. The small band of ultras who dreamt of a return to empire, who think we still are a superpower and who have no understanding of the meaning of the word sovereignty, have dragged us back to the 1950s. As my late mother once said, anyone stupid enough to think they want to go back to the 50s did not live through the 50s. But there are factions amongst the Conservatives who would quite like to return to an orderly, monochrome world. Not just the 50s, the 50s before rock and roll turned up to ruin everything. And that worldview does resonate with older voters. If we've fallen into this time trap, how do we get out? Hannah, none of us in this room are old enough to remember the 50s, are we? We're far too young and beautiful. <laughs> uh, but we all know somebody who does, you yeah. know, our parents, or in some cases our grandparents. What would they make of the idea that... Not only are things now as bad as they were in the time of rationing and the austerity itself, but that there are people in politics who raise the 1950s as a kind of an ideal for the way to live. 
Well, I find this discussion really tricky because we're really not comparing like with like. Mm -hmm. And often, not in this piece by John T. Bloom, but it's the wealthiest doing the reflecting, isn't it? So when they sit in Parliament and talk about how great economic benefits of the 50s and that period of social stability, it's not an accurate reflection of what it was like for the majority of people. My parents were born in the 50s. And the world that my dad and my mum talk about when they talk about their early years, the age my kids are now, is so different yeah. in so many ways. You know, the, whole, the classic things, it's almost embarrassing to bring them up. But just as a reminder, sharing your whole family's bathwater, one yep. bath a week. My mum lived in a one-bedroom flat, council flat with her family. So all four children, my mum, her sister and her mum and dad, shared a room up until my mum was 10. These are now things that we, we, we do see in this country, don't get me wrong, but it's families living in temporary accommodation who are homeless or in, in those uh, situations. And we rightly consider that lacking in basic dignity. So why we are sitting around, you know, it, people in parliament, people in select committees looking post-Brexit, well, thinking about this as some kind of, you know, potential social utopia. Yeah. It, it, it makes me quite angry. We're also in a situation where, you know, as the only woman on the panel today, I'm just going to say it, women were often trapped in an insidious position, pinned to a breadwinner poor access to contraception. Um, I can't cope with any kind of hearkening back to these traditional values because it's just, I think, well, by the grace of God that I was born in the 80s. Yeah, I mean, same here. What I heard was from my mother and her sister and, and all that they talked about is the relentless greyness of everything, the lack of anything to stimulate the mind. It wasn't just the rationing of foodstuffs and the, and the, and the drudgery of having to get hold of basic essentials. It's just stuff, everything was shot. <laughs> Yeah. Some days were Sundays. dead. Nothing <laughs> happened. Boredom. But you can fully understand why that generation of my mother's age was, was, was sort of like desperate for anything, desperate for mm. something to happen in colour in their lives. And now this is sort of held up as like, well, it was a great time, wasn't it? Very stable. Also, people people just misremember. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think that in some ways I'm quite guilty of this about my teen years in the 90s and, you know, Cool Britannia, Blair. No, well, we, that was obviously great. <laughs> we've, done, we've done a whole podcast about this, you and I, yes. or no God, what else? Um, of course I'm misremembering it. Mm. Of course, for those people who weren't 13, 14, 15, there were huge problems in, in the mid-90s and it wasn't this great, you know, utopia of progress and so on. But when you look at the past, this is all you've got. You've got misremembered personal details plus some stats and mm. you end up with this sort of false impression. And I really hate this focusing on the past rather than, you know, yeah. but pushing po- towards the future. But politics is culture, isn't it? And you kind of see this stuff manifest not so much in, uh, in, in, in a speech in the House of Commons or in a kind of manifesto commitment. But what you see is in places like you know, boomer memes about eating corned beef and real bin men. Um, <laughs> yeah. I had a strange I story. Eating bin men. Eating bin men. Well, <laughs> right. you know, we were poor. We didn't know what, what we had no alternative. But I mean, I had a bizarre interaction the other day with somebody on one of the kind of old photos groups on Facebook. And they would say with a bare face, the 1950s is fantastic. There was no no knife crime, no guns of any kind. Oh I just put a picture of the Cray twins there and said, your, your comments. And yeah. you also see it kind of manifesting things like, you know, call the midwife and heartbeat and all this kind of stuff. This the, the idea that the past is not just a foreign country, it's a fictional country. Tom, I mean, I, w- I want to ask you, do you detect aspects of a bit of a 50s fixation in people like, say, Miriam Cates with her kind of natalist, well, you yeah, know, kinderkirker cooker type of thing? Yeah, I mean, Miriam Cates is kind of certifiable, but like her driving principle, if you like, um, and also I don't agree with it, but I'm happy to explain it, is that women shouldn't be afraid to say that I want to be a stay-at-home mum and that politicians shouldn't ignore or judge the millions of people out there, men and women, who live lifestyles that is unchanged by decades of social progress. But the trouble is from that, those people also tend to think that social change, i.e. women going out to work, has been the thin end of the wedge for like moral decay in society and that from that have come all sorts of other undesirable things like, say, gay people getting married and having children. We've been, we're talking about 50s nostalgia now, but it should also be understood the context of our discussion, which is we are talking about a government that is dying on its ass and is going yeah. to get kicked out. And where she and her like fall down is that they just don't realise that politics doesn't exist to serve people like that who are sort of doing fine. It's there to enable people who want to do more with their lives. And this politics of nostalgia, it pretends that you can solve problems by going back to a time before they existed, which you obviously can't. Like, you can't disinvent modern life any more than you can disinvent the nuclear bomb. And people like her and what she stands for, fascinating though it is to discuss, 
they're going to get a real shock from the voters. And this pandering to people who want everything to go back to the way, the way things used to be, like it died. Like Cameron and Osborne came back in because they realised that the Tories were hopeless on that front, that there was no way of winning an election without embracing liberal metropolitan values. And that very much still stands. We just had the spasm of Brexit that has sent us backwards. But the truths have not changed. Like, we have moved on. We just have a governing party that's going nuts because it's very, very near the end. It's interesting. Is this a bit of a digression? But you mentioned sort of the idea of uh, families living extremely traditional roles. You know, the mum brings up the kids, the dad goes out to work. It's entirely possible to do that, should you wish, and still have progressive views across the board on all kinds of other things. You know, I know quite a lot of enormously progressive women with a crazy progressive ideas. Some of them are even married to women who uh, still want to have that role of, you know, I will take time to bring up the kids, but it doesn't define everything about me. And that seems to be the thing that Planet Kate doesn't get. As you say, I mean, it's perfectly, it's not incompatible to say that you think that for you as as a mother, uh, the, the, the best place you could be is at home until they're 10 or 11. And still be progressive yeah. in every other way. <laughs> be at home teaching them woke stuff. <laughs> you, yeah. Of course you can, but it's not, it's hard. So all people like Miriam Cates are trying to do is make politics out of something. And you can make politics mm-hmm. out of it by saying, well, look, you can say, well, you know what? There are millions of families out there who still lead traditional lives and they want to lead a traditional family lifestyle. And yet all they, and they're, they're constantly being told by The Guardian and told by the BBC that they're in the wrong. Well, all she's trying to do is make politics, not solve any problems. And that should be extremely obvious. And that's why it's not going to yeah. get her anywhere. Matt, um, you know, when the 50s gets talked up, it tends to always be in terms of order, especially law and order. You can leave your door open. Kids could play in the street without being molested. All this kind of stuff, which, as we know, was, it wasn't strictly true. When you, Particularly when you hear it in social media, particularly in you know, kind of the places where the, the boomer post or the older person will, will congregate, very quickly, it becomes clear that this is a proxy for let's. Why don't you spit it out? Everybody was white. You liked it when everybody was white, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it's it's undeniable. There's there's a lot of that going on, and of course, to have been an adult in the 1950s at this point, you'd have to be well into your 80s yeah. by now. So we're not talking about you know people who can remember it very clearly. It's 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 a, it's a long way away, and. There's very few people who have like living memory of that time as a grown-up, as someone who genuinely understood what was happening, not just someone who's, as you say, like a teenager or someone in their 20s who was just kind of um, excited about being in the world. And I always think that thing about um, you could leave your door open. I think, yeah, because there was nothing to steal. Yeah, <laughs> My mum says that quite a lot, actually. Yeah, it didn't matter. We, did, we, did, we didn't have iPhones lying around. Yeah, I mean, like, about, I think that about school now, you know, that kids walking around with things that cost 500 quid in their pocket. And I think I went to school with like a pencil case with a couple of, you know, and I was going to school in the 80s and yeah. I didn't have anything to, worth stealing. So if you go back to the 50s, would, yeah, the, very few people had, this was before the consumer economy was really, you know, getting going in this country anyway. And so, yeah, there was a lot less. And I think I'm sure there were, there was a bit more of a sense of people sort of knew who everybody was in their area. But that can be positive mm. and can be very negative as well. If you're someone who, yeah, I think you, I can't remember if it was the piece you referenced in New European or, or a different one. But it's people saying that after the war, you know, men for several years they just went to the pub and they all wore the same thing. They wore their white shirt and their regimental tie, and it it was quite. I thought I found that quite an interesting image of like, yeah, of course, people who went through the war and then they wanted to sort of express that they'd done something important and oh. but they didn't want to be unconventional they wanted oh. to be very much ordered and that was great if you fitted into that frame but if you didn't if you were a bit different if you were maybe LGBT which you wouldn't have said at the time uh-huh. and I couldn't say it just then uh, or if you were obviously someone who'd come over from um, the Caribbean or somewhere recently then those things were totally close to you oh. Do you think today's conservatives would actually like the society that they started to build in the 1950s because you know all right the 1950s is a seesaw between atlaism and kind of a, a kind of strange complacent conservatism but what kind of began then was the beginning of the consumer society the beginning of the end of deference the beginning of the end of people just shutting up and taking it because the big thing was the massive cultural shift that the the, the creation of rock and roll the invention of the teenage the invention of pop culture which becomes the engine of of, of modernity it strikes me that the people who are talking up the 50s now would actually hate what happened at the end of the 50s. Oh, definitely. Um, I mean, it reminds me a bit of the um, that East European term, um, uh, sorry, East German term, ostalgie. Yeah. Um, the idea that they they were really nostalgic for the the time of um, being part 
of the Iron Curtain and, and because the memory of, of people deletes the bad stuff and keeps the good stuff, as we were saying. And I also think, I don't know, the more I think about this, the more I think that the Thatcherism did so much to radically transform this country. And it's stuff that that Tories, I think, would often, maybe secretly, quietly, would agree with it was brutal and it was completely devastating to communities uh, all around the country um, and also great for some people. And so, yeah, it, Thatcherism still held up as this great thing. But I think quite a lot of Tories at the moment would say that it was good and bad and there were things that were good. And in a way, it feels like that's what almost what they're trying to do is almost like go bef- before that. That's the issue. They want to go before the big, the big bang, the city yeah. big bang and all that stuff. Well, I suppose the irony is that Thatcherism kind of managed to pull off a, a weird kind of bait and switch in that she kind of, her rhetoric was of kind of, you know, restoring that kind of ordered society. Mm. But actually what she unleashed was massive change and chaos. Yeah, and individualism. She, yeah, she herself couldn't even see the end of it. Yeah, and it, and, and in a way, because she almost feels like a sort of 50s character, mm. she, she was the sort of classic sort of housewife character, even though that's obviously not what she really was in a sense. Mm. The handbag. Um, exactly, the <laughs> yeah. handbag and the and the demure dress and all that kind of stuff. And it means that, that she was almost doing this incredibly radical stuff but almost from a 50s perspective. And that I, I wonder if that's almost what's getting confused in people's minds. I remember when Margaret Thatcher was interviewed in Smash Hits <laughs> by Tom Hibbert. And Tom Hibbert, readers of a certain age, remember what a very, very funny writer he was. And he asked her what her favourite record was. And she said, how much is that doggy in the window? <laughs> and this, you've got, uh, this, this is the early 80s. You've got 30 years of the greatest efflorescence in popular music in God knows how long. And she chooses how much is that dog in the window. And Tom's this very interesting perspective there on uh, capitalism <laughs> and the dog, how much did it cost? But, you know, um, John T. Bloom, Hannah, who wrote this piece, we'll, it's a really good piece. We'll put a link in the, in the show notes. He blames small-minded climate change denying little Englanders for the return to kind of 1950s thinking. But isn't the problem that those are exactly the kind of people whose minds labour has to change if it's going to make a difference? Well, Yes and no. No, really. Okay. I don't think that Labour does have to change anyone's minds on the climate. What it needs to do is win the election. And to win the election, it might have to say some weasel words, like we were talking about earlier, about mm. things like the gig economy and zero hours contracts. And it might have to do a bit of shape-shifting on that. But it doesn't have to do any shape-shifting on climate. People's employment contracts are very important. I'm not trying to undermine how significant stable work is, and it makes a huge difference to people's individual lives and quality of life. But... The climate crisis is a much bigger thing. It's a moral global imperative. So you just have to do it. Mm. And to do anything, you have to win power. Tom, just to wrap up, uh, John T. Bloom also uh, writes that as the economic decline of the UK becomes clear, the public will demand an explanation. Why are the French wealthier than us? Why are the poorest 20% of the British poorer than the poorest Poles? Where is our trade with Europe gone? Why is the NHS on its knees yet again? Are you optimistic that, you know, the this sort of closed world idea will be rumbled by the electorate that they can see not just what's gone wrong, but why it's gone wrong. Um, He's right that voters will demand an explanation and they are already demanding one. But the answer will be that it is the Tories' fault. And I I, I know that is such a boring thing to say and such a sort of glib thing to say, but I I just think that that is the answer. It's broken Mm. politics. And it's partly because the traditional opposition, i.e. Labour, and they are usually in opposition, rose out of the trade union movement, which means that Tories get to say with some justification that you have to vote for us to keep the socialists out. And a lot of people don't like socialism, so they have an inbuilt advantage. And, they, and the consequence is that you just then have people running the country that don't use the NHS, or if they do, they don't need to. They don't use the education system. And everything on that front that's got so much worse in the last 10, 15 years than it ever was under like Thatcher or Major has also coincided with a, cl- a clique of people and kind of a class of people just getting richer and richer and richer and richer and richer, far more than they ever did before, and just not seeing the problem and not understanding it. I mean, Theresa May actually did, by the way. She used to talk about how hard life is for most people and most people just don't notice or care. And she tried to do something about it, but she was torpedoed by her own mistakes. But what is interesting is you can actually see right-wing Tories now asking the questions that you've just asked me. Why are we poorer than the French? Why are we this? Why are we that? And I think that they've realised that they're about to be turfed out for a very long time and there will be no route back without any kind of honest reckoning on that front. I mean, they, they pretended that the answer to those problems would be Brexit related and they've been utterly found out. But I do think we've sort of possibly hit, polit- not economically, but we have 
politically hit rock, rock bottom. And both parties will have to be honest with the voters about those questions for sure. Both parties will have to be honest with the voters. <laughs> My God, could it ever happen? <laughs> This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Next up, our panellists choose three lions and three liars in Hero and Villain <laughs> of the Week. Each panellist will nominate one, and I'm going to choose because this is an autocracy. Matt, who's your Hero of the Week and who's your Villain of the Week? Well, I was tempted to do something controversial and say Donald Trump for Hero. Um, uh, just because he's not going to do the Republican primary debate. and It means none of us have to watch it now. <laughs> uh, that's a fair point. Um, yeah. And just it sort of makes it, makes it clear how much of a complete nonsense that whole primary is. But no, I, I found somebody else who is a genuine hero. And that is uh, Sarah and Mel Lewis of Mel's Chippy in Penagroyce, Carmarthenshire, who are offering £1 meals for struggling families over the summer holidays and say they've been totally overwhelmed by demand. And it's a, it's a lovely story. It's on the BBC. And they they keep the menu changing and uh, they give the kids um, healthy food and they've started being supported by other people in the community. And it's one of those stories where it's like it's sad that that is a thing that has to exist like food Mm. banks, but great that it does in that particular community. Mm -hmm. Okay, and who's your villain? So the villain, um, kind of an obvious one, this one, but the president of the Spanish Football Federation. Oh, what a creep. (laughs) What a horrible, horrible creep. Luis Rubiales. I mean, just the fact that, you know, we all know he did. He kissed the forward and on the lips, which was weird. And she said immediately she didn't like it. And then later she gave comments to the media saying, no, it was fine. It was a spontaneous gesture of blah, blah, blah. And you get a real sense that was, that was heavily PR'd. Mm. Um, uh, and then he, he afterwards said that anyone who has a problem with it uh, are idiots and stupid people, which was lovely. Um, <laughs> uh, Women, you're idiots and stupid people. Including the woman that exactly. it actually happened to. Exactly. And he has, I think, um, I, I've just seen before we started recording, I think he has apologised now. So I'm sure that he'll say that that's all over. But it wasn't just that it was annoying. It was more that it reminded me of all those um, videos you see of like, men proposing to their girlfriends during their girlfriend's graduation ceremony. Oh, God, oh yes. right. Do you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. it's just like, it's not about you. Just give her a minute. And it felt like that was an exa- example of that, of like, it was her biggest moment of her life and she gets, and then suddenly it's about him then. And then he's kind of slightly spoilt it. And it just, yeah, I, I found that very, well very, said. Very Two very strong contenders there, I think. Yeah. Hannah, you got to beat that. Your hero and your villain. So my villain, perennial here, Suella Bravman, but really it's actually the home office, the whole home office. <laughs> All because, of them. Uh, Even the what, cleaners. Just the ge- no, not the cleaners. The general structure of the home office, because obsessed as they are with the cost of migration and incoming migrant small boats, they're creating the cost because we've discovered this week that more than 100 guards were um, recruited to the uh, crisis-hit Manston Detention Centre and they're all on full pay without being able to work because they failed to do any of the security checks that they need to get these people to work. So they're paying 100 people now for months full-time pay for doing literally sitting on the backsides at home. Who's your hero? My hero of the week if I'm allowed to bring him up on this, what we might call rival podcast, All right, then. is Lewis Goodall. Who's uh, he? I've never heard of him. Who's <laughs> he? Um, on the very popular, but not as good as this podcast, News Agents, he did an excellent rant this week about A-level uh, results and the um, discussion ongoing about whether or not university is um, a, a profitable and useful route anymore. And he said, essentially, when everybody, anybody talks about how expensive higher education is now, that it might not be worth the money anymore and that maybe you maybe people should think about a different route. They're not talking about their own children and that the Prime Minister would never say to his own children, yeah, it's fine, why don't yeah. you just choose an apprenticeship or a different route? 
I'm glad that he's saying it in quite such angry terms because yeah, I Rishi, share his frustration. Rishi's not going to tell the girls to go like trains with sparks. Exactly. Yeah. They're never talking about themselves, yeah, are yeah, they? It's yeah. like she, like Gillian Keegan said, oh, in 10 years' time, no one will ask what your A-level results were. It's like, yeah, but that, that doesn't mean they're not important right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Tom, you, this, you've got some tough ones to beat. Hey, who's your hero and who's your villain? Well, I have to say that on the script, my name is first and I resent <laughs> the fact that I've been asked last because obviously I've gone as my for my villain the absolute world-class pillock that is Spanish FA president Luis Rubiales, <laughs> <Yeah>. who <laughs> kissed the Spanish women's captain on the lips in the, med- in the medal ceremony. Mm-hmm. But for my hero, I would like to go with absolute world-class pillock, Spanish FA president Luis Rubiales. <laughs> oh, right. Because he has, in his own staggeringly dim way, provided a very useful public service, which is to remind everyone, like right in the middle of the very feel-good thing that has been the Women's World Cup, that people shouldn't get carried away, that the world, and certainly the football world, really is still run by absolute dinosaurs. They've gone nowhere, and they're an absolute menace. So he has provided a a heroic act of public service by revealing (laughs) his own cretinous stupidity to the world. This is incredibly, incredibly persuasive. So the judgment is as follows. Sorry, Brovman's, you know, she can be the villain whenever you like. So (laughs) villain is definitely going to be Lewis, the uh, unwanted kisser chief of the Spanish (laughs) FA, clearly the absolute creep of the week. And the heroes, I think it's going to the chip shop women for their laying on the uh, one pound meals, people who really need it. And I'm going to take a wild guess that there's a crowdfunder out there because a story like this cannot possibly not generate a crowdfunder. I hope so. I didn't. There isn't one in the story, but then I'm sure that's just because the BBC aren't allowed to promote these Probably things. So not, I'm sure yeah. if you look for it, you'll be yeah. able to find it. Yeah. So sorry about Lewis Goodall. It was a good rant, but is he doing chip shop meals for a pound <laughs> for the needy? I don't think so. Next up this week, we're back on the housing desk. If we can find a place big enough to fit one next to the kitchen sink. The whole country agrees that we need to build more houses somehow, somewhere, but nobody agrees on where, how many or how it's going to be paid for. England alone needs 340,000 new homes a year, including 145,000 affordable homes. That's every year until 2031, just to keep up with current demand, according to the National Housing Federation. Yet existing house prices are at the lowest rate in half a decade and are predicted to fall still further by 2025. So assuming that Labour are on track for the kind of majority where they can actually get stuff done, How would all this stuff get fixed? Hannah, you are housing desk. The problem is enormous and yet weirdly seemingly simple. Not enough houses, too many people. Can you break it down in a bit more detail? Where and what sorts of houses are missing? I will try and help. So, um, first of all, there's sort of two sides to the what's missing. It's, you know, who owns it and where do you get it from and also what does it do? So, um, we obviously obviously do not have enough social rented housing. It was all sold off through the right to buy. We didn't rebuild enough. Um, But we also created under Cameron this false thing called affordable rent, which comes under the social housing criteria, but it's actually not affordable at all. It's about 80% of market rent, which is inaffordable to most people. So it's not useful. So there's a huge gap there. We don't have enough um, private rent that is properly organised through corporate private landlords. These things called Real Estate Investment Trust REITs, they were designed to make sure that it wasn't just random hobbyists who were your private landlord. It would be big institutions and pension funds would own these big developments and it would mean that you could have secure long-term private rent. We don't have enough of that. We also don't have enough specialist housing. So if you're disabled or you become disabled, you can stay in your own home. And we also don't have enough basic large family homes because people are sitting in their private owned home that they've paid the mortgage off in when there's maybe only one of a former family of five left because everybody's died or moved out and they're just completely under occupying them. So they're sitting there and so you can't, so families are, can't get in. Um, it's complex, but it is, as you say, sort of simple. We do need more numbers and we need it to make it more affordable and accessible. And I could I, talk for about 20 minutes straight, so I'll let you ask another question. Well, we, I'm sure we'll come back to this, possibly on Bunker Dailies as well, because it is, <laughs> it is massively complicated. And I mean, housing policy itself is famously hard to communicate anyway, because it's so variegated. Labour plans include more building on the green belt, bringing back the housing targets that the Conservatives scrapped last year, making it cheaper to buy agricultural land for development and what they call tilting the power in favour of first-time buyers. What does all this amount to? What What, what is your thought as a housing person on the, on the Labour package? Yeah. Um, well, it's really, it is hard to communicate. You're right to say that because it is kind of complex. There's so many players involved and the money strand is all caught up in lots of different places. So Labour policy, as you said, you, you, all those elements that you pointed out, it's got all of the right things in there, but they are actually also 
all the same things that all parties have dabbled in a bit. And I think I would like to see something a bit more radical um, because the funding and the commitment is the problem. So you can say you're going to do all these little bits of things and make commitments, but you've got to actually see see it through to the end. And relying on the private sector right now, which Tories would obviously do, to deliver a lot of this, it's just not going to happen. We've got an economy where house prices are dropping, materials are incredibly expensive, labour's incredibly expensive. It's not economically sensible. So if you were given the remote control to Rachel Reeves' brain yeah. and you can do these radical things, what would they be? Right, I've got a, a list of four things. Excellent, four points. Tony Blow Rachel would love that. Reeves, <laughs> are you listening? Mm-hmm. I'm very happy to come and do a little bit of consulting on the side. <laughs> okay. Number one is to set up a development corporation with a target and fully fund it in some way. It's fine if you get private investment in somehow. I have no problem with that politically, but you need the government to be responsible and setting up a development corporation to deliver the housing that we need is the only way to do that. This is a human right. It's Mm. beyond now a debate about the politics of localisation versus centralisation. You've got to get it sorted. And it's happened before the new towns were set up using development corporations. So there is history of it. So I think that would be really good. Call it Great British Housing. Great (laughs) British Housing. What a great initialism that is. Right. (laughs) Number two. Uh, Okay, so the second thing is about the local housing allowance and housing benefit. So for people who don't know about this, housing benefit does not bear any relationship to the actual rent that you pay. Under Cameron during the austerity era, the government decided that it was a massive problem that the government had such a huge housing benefit bill and they wanted to do something about it and they thought they had more power to manipulate the market than they did. Weird for Tories since they love Mm -hmm. a free market. And they decided that if they they reduced housing benefit and created this thing called the local housing allowance. Private landlords would just link their rent to that because they would want security of income uh, and that they could s- slowly reduce local rents. So that's what they tried to do. They started putting a cap on on housing benefit, essentially, and landlords, funnily enough, just didn't care. <laughs> so they carried on charging higher rents. People got into huge trouble, you know, with arrears and so on and evictions. Or private landlords would just stop letting to anyone who claimed universal credit or housing benefit. So it, it could, became completely separated. And we've allowed rents to spiral and people on benefits to have less and less. So something's got to be done about that. You need a complete overhaul of the benefit system. The third thing is there needs to be a zero homelessness policy. So that was totally made possible in COVID. And I know that was partly because hotels were sitting empty. So there were loads of rooms you could put homeless people in. But actually, it's very possible to do that. All it needed was some minds on it and some money behind it. At the moment, we have a policy where because of the shortage of housing, Local authorities will not help people who are at risk of homelessness, who know they're slipping into homelessness, they're going to get evicted, until the day they're out on the street. That can't be right. Mm -hmm. So let's have zero homelessness and creative policy to make that happen. And finally, we need to think about when we're developing housing, we need to think more about the life, our life cycle about housing and how we use housing. So at the moment, we talk about housing as an asset. We talked about that slightly earlier in the show. It can't go on like that. We need pensioners to understand that they have a moral imperative to move when they're under-occupying. Um, and we need to think about housing, that building housing and having some, some kind of route through housing that we expect to live in a small studio when we're single at 23. That's okay. And we should expect to have access to an affordable four-bedroom house if you're a family with three kids. But equally, you shouldn't expect to be able to stay in there. Of course, if you own it, you get into a, a discussion then about land rights and property rights and but what does it incentives. mean to own but we need yeah we need a conversation a political conversation where we talk about things uh, about the uh, housing as a part of life rather than a financial asset because it's distorting and it's problematic so tom there's a four-point plan there what kind of a political opportunity is housing for labor because they fight could they fight an election effectively primarily on we will fix the housing crisis or is that simply a hostage to fortune well, they can promise anything, can't they? I mean, I, I sort of want to die whenever I hear any politics. I mean, God, I've wanted to die almost constantly covering politics for the last seven years. But bizarrely, the thing that makes me want to die more than any of it is almost any time any politician says the word housing, because you just know that nothing is going to happen. I think mm. if Keir Starmer fights an election campaign in which he promises to fix the housing crisis, you are quite correct. That is, I wouldn't even describe it as being a hostage to fortune. It's a promise that he will definitely, definitely not keep. I mean, I'm not an economist or a housing expert. To me, when I think of the housing crisis, I mainly just think that homes cost five times more than they should. And that's the problem that needs to be solved. 
But if you have 15 years of ridiculously low interest rates, 15 years is a very long time, you then have another whole generation who is hopelessly overmortgaged, hopelessly overexposed to a house price crash. And I don't understand how you can't have one of those demographics, i.e. the people who can't afford to buy one or the people who have bought one that they can't afford. One of those demographics essentially has to live with a ruined life. I don't, I don't understand how there is any alternative to that. So I have no idea how any politician can come along and tell you they're going to fix the housing crisis because it involves screwing up the lives of one set of millions of people or a different set of millions of people. Well, I agree with you in, in a lot of ways, except for I, I would say that in the way you've just described it, you have sort of taken on some of the rhetoric of these years and years of the crisis that we've had, which actually not owning your own home is not a ruined life. But we have a situation at the moment where it becomes ruinous because the rental sector is so buggered. So if we sort that out and we make it so that you can have a 20-year fixed contract planned out for you, you know exactly what's going to happen, you can have a good, happy family life in rented. You know, not Mortgaging isn't right for everyone. I, know, I completely agree, but people do still want to buy their own home. They just do. Yeah. But partly because it's so shit to rent here. And, well, you know, that's not true yeah. in, all, in yeah. European countries. I mean, a bit of news that came through today is that the rise in mortgage rates means it is now cheaper to rent a home than to buy one for the first time since 2010. Now, obviously, that won't always be the case. No, but, but that's how it should be, of Yeah, course. in the kind of, in, 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 in the shift of things. Um, you know, Tom, it is kind of bizarre that the Conservatives have managed to basically cut off the production line of their own voters. You know, <laughs> young homeowners, you know, turn 35, buy a house, start paying tax, start voting Tory. Just doesn't work anymore, does it? Well, no, because there's, a, I mean, there's a very, very, very serious financial crash in 2008. And the response of the Conservatives was to focus on homeowners. And they were very happy to see insanely rising house prices because it provided a full sense of economic security and political cover for growing economic doom. So they were very happy to make that bargain. Rising house prices let them off the hook for lots of things for a while, but they're very obviously on the hook now. Matt, this is true, isn't it? Because it's enormously risky to embark on a radical like house building on a massive scale, even in, in the kind of detail that um, Hannah's just described, because you put yourself right in the line for male headlines saying the price of your house is collapsing, your nest egg, Starmer destroys your life. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, I think Tom's right that, that unfortunately housing value has become the only wealth that most people have uh, in this mm. country, if they have any, if they're lucky enough to have some, uh, and that changing that causes massive problems in the short term for those people, even if it has long-term benefits in the long term, you know. And the whole system is sort of set up to resist that. It just feels to me like the problem is that building new houses will annoy the people in an area who currently live there and help people who don't currently live there, who don't vote mm -hmm. because they don't exist yet in that area. I mean, it feels like the whole housing policy is basically a sort of form of one, like a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush, like a voter in a house is worth two prospective voters in a flat. Like we're kind of, we're stuck in this kind of loop. And I think, um, yeah, unfortunately, political incentives are set up like that, that people love the idea of housing in theory. And then as soon as someone says, we're going to build a new um, estate down the, down the end of your road, people are like, oh, well, yeah, not, not round. What about not the view? Here. Exactly. Mm. Um, and, I, you know, I, I live in North London. I've seen that happen. Got, you know, there have been various development attempts in our area. And, the most angry I've ever seen people in our area is when people are trying to build some houses down the road and people go, no, we can't do that because there's a there's a reason why that this particular bit of green land is really important. And I think, well, is it? I don't know. I'm not really sure. But, you know, they're, they're the, they, they've got the, the the loudest voices and so they're the, they're the ones who end up talking to the councillors and they, they often win. This is why we should back the Yimbies. <laughs> yeah. Yes, in my backyard. Hannah Starmer wants Labour to be known as the party of home ownership. Can he wrest that crown from the Tories? Should he even want to? I'm going to guess you're going to say he shouldn't. I don't think he should want to. I think it, he should know deep down that that is not the way to solve this. Um, and actually, a kind of hard conversation with everyone about housing would be better. But he is going to do it because he's probably right that right now it's more politically successful I don't know, it's a funny time to go through that because you have got this situation where because house prices are dropping, you do reduce the deposit barrier. Mm. So there is prospective Labour voters who don't own home yet who probably would have voted Labour anyway, but they might be buoyed up by this idea that Starmer's the person who's going to get them finally on the property ladder, but it, it is going to alienate the kind of people that they need to win over from the Tories. So It strikes me as being a little bit like the Lewis Goodall thing, that... Like you said, that we've got the situation where if you 
get to buy your house, that's considered like the winning the winning place to be. But there are lots of people going, well, it shouldn't be, though. That shouldn't mm. be the build and end all. But they all own their house. Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. Them. It is. That's true. And if, and, if, and if MPs this... just all rented, had to rent for some reason, or you know, rather than being landlords, a lot of them, then it feels like the conversation would be the other way around. Yeah. We have created a system where it does feel like the barometer of kind of personal success. When actually, maybe that will change over the next few years because, of exactly as Tom described, we've now got this situation where people who have bought homes they actually can't really afford are going to suddenly feel the pain of that very tricky decision they made. Negative equity all over again. We've reached the end of the show, so it's time for Escape Routes, the books, the films, the music that our panel are listening to to take their minds off the horrible absence of politics rather than the nightmare of politics at the moment. Tom, what's your escape route? Uh, well, it's nothing new, but I've belatedly got round to watching um, Slow Horses on Apple TV. I don't know if you oh, guys right. have watched it, and it's just so good. Have you all seen it? Presumably you have. Yeah, I've no. read the books, but I've not seen the show. No. I don't know it. Tell, tell us what it is. Well, well, the slow horses are like MI5's wrong'uns and they work out of a shithole office where they've been banished for cocking things up. But they also inevitably end up back in the thick of it and they get gamed and used by the big boys back at Regent's Park. And um, it's just so good. It's like Bond, but authentically British. Like, yeah. like what it's really like, like based sort of quite crap, low budget, it's like Bond on benefits. <laughs> <laughs> and Gary Oldman, I didn't realise this, he said it's going to be his last acting role and he's so good in it. And it looks like the third, they've filmed the third and fourth series and I think they're going to come out at Christmas and again next April. He's not that old. I'm not quite annoyed about that. I, I don't know that Gary Oldman should be allowed to retire. <laughs> he should, he's a productive actor. There's plenty more roles in him. He should be nationalised. He should be, yeah. <laughs> um, Hannah, what's your escape route? I have just finished reading a novel called Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by oh. Gabrielle Zevin. I was recommended that last week. It's yeah. absolutely brilliant. Um, What's it about? So it's basically about friendship. It's about these two kids who meet under the age of 10 and then um, become friends during their teen years, then lose each other and find again at university. And then it's about how they collaborate in their working lives. But it's also about video games. Now, I know nothing about video games. The last time I played a video game was Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 2 in 1999. <laughs> I am not interested. It's not my thing at all. This book is, has made me interested in the world of games, in game culture, in why people are invested in it, in what it means to people. And I, for the first time ever, I get why it's important to people. And I feel like not only is this an excellent novel with a brilliant narrative, it says a lot about America and it says a lot about um, you know culture and people and friendship and relationships and work, all of those things. It also has taught me a lot about some of my best friends, a, a thing that I could never had never really accessed about them before. So I highly recommend it. And I powered, I never have any time to read at the moment. And um, as listeners know, I was bang on about that. I've got two young kids. I powered through this in about four days because I loved it so much. So yeah, highly recommend. Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabrielle Zevin. Amazing. The last video game I played was Cool Spot on the Sega Mega Drive <laughs> in about 1991. Um, Matt, what's your escape room? Well, mine has to be The Fringe. That's where I've been for a week. So oh. that was my escape route. Um, and uh, yeah, every year, you know, people talk about it's getting too big or it's getting too corporate or the accommodation's too expensive. And all of that is true. But every time I go, it's just so inspiring because there are just thousands and thousands of people putting all of their heart and soul into their show, whether that's on stage or backstage or wherever. And the amount of sort of creativity squeezed into one fairly small city, really, and oh. certainly the, the, the area that fringes, is, is quite a small amount of, um, of space. And it's also the only place you can go into a Sainsbury's any time of day or night and be queuing up behind an angel, a witch, and someone in full period dress, and just everyone's just fine with it. You it's, haven't been to Dalston. Well, well, but... <laughs> and it's just... And, and like, yeah, all time of day or night as well. Like, it's it's um, it's just such an exciting place to be. And every time I go, I, I sort of come back thinking, oh, you know, it's, it's, it's great. And I was only there for a week, so I didn't get too sort of jaded by it all. What was the best thing you saw? Um, well, I saw lots of good stuff. Um, I would say maybe Ahir Shah, who, oh, I, who I know is a friend of the podcast. Yeah. His show, I mean, his shows are always excellent. But this year, uh, his show, I think, is called Ends. Uh, and interestingly, it's about um, his grandfather, partly. And part of it is about... Um, how he feels like he's learning how or has learned how his grandparents and parents' generation sacrificed for his generation. And he's 
wondering about how he can sacrifice for the next generation because he's getting married soon and sort of thinking about that. And all of those questions suddenly became quite relevant in today's discussion, I think, that, you know, how do you ask old generations to sacrifice for younger generations? Mm -hmm. How does that work? And he he talks about that in a very sort of moving and very, very funny, but also very, uh, I found very affecting way about like how his grandfather sacrificed so much for so many years for his family. And then eventually towards the end of his life, sort of decided to do stuff for himself. And it's kind of, it's a really fun, it's a really interesting story. Fantastic. Well, mine, my escape route is music and it's not a new record. It came out at the start of the year. It's by Confidence Man and it's called Tilt. And it is a record of big, summer, shiny pop music. Uh, the reason I've started listening to it again is because summer is ending and <laughs> you're getting that sort of weird feeling where, you know, it's getting dark a little bit earlier. And this record really reminds me of 1990, which is when I was the first time I was in London, which was an incredible summer. And the records that came out at that time, when house music and pop music had become the same thing. So you had incredible records like Seven Ways to Love by Cola Boy or Fascinating Rhythm by Bass great great pop hits and confidence man are very much like that they're basically the australian delight and <laughs> so every other song sounds either like groove is in the heart or it sounds like what is love everything's got a tambourine on it it's just up 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 it's not trying to tell you the meaning of life and because it's not trying to tell you the meaning of life it is showing you the meaning of life so it's a, just a fantastic fantastic record it's um tilt by confidence man and i recommend it to uh, anybody with ears <laughs> And that's the end of the Tuesday edition of Oh God, What Now? Thank you, Matt. Thank you. Thank you, Hannah. Thank you. And thank you, Tom. Thank you very much. Oh God, What Now? We'll be back on Friday or Thursday if you're a Patreon backer. You can now, if you want to, go straight to YouTube and watch all of this in human technical glory as well as listening to it. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. Oh God, What Now? was presented by Andrew Harrison with Hannah Fern, Tom Peck and Matt Green. The producers were Chris Jones and Alex Reese, with audio production from me, Robin Lieber. Art direction is from James Parrott and social media by Jess Harpin. Managing editor is Jacob Jarvis and group editor is Andrew Harrison. Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production.